Last week we got all the way through one verse. But it was a big verse. Yeah. The verse was about the authority and the inspiration of Scripture. Hebrews 10.15 And actually, it was just an introduction to a citation of the Scripture, but we use that as an excuse to explore the doctrine of inspiration. So the verse we studied last week, Hebrews 10.15, says, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them, and after those days that the Lord I will put my laws upon their heart and upon their mind, I will write them. Then he says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I'll remember no more. Now the discussion last week was concerning the fact that in this introduction to a quotation of the Scripture, the author of Hebrews says the Holy Spirit bears witness. And we pointed out two things. Number one, that this shows the inspiration of Scripture. That the Holy Spirit inspired the Scripture. And secondly, that because of the present tense, the Holy Spirit also bears witness present, that the Scripture, even today, is the Holy Spirit speaking to us. So, what people, if they want to hear from the Holy Spirit, they don't need some technique to hear inner voices. They need to read the Scripture. And one of the claims that Luther, Martin Luther, made vociferously at the time of the Reformation was that the Holy Spirit speaks through the Word. We see other confirmation of that in the Scripture where it says, for example, in Ephesians, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Okay? So, having said that, let's look at verse 16. This is the covenant I will make with them. Now, we've discussed this earlier in the book of Hebrews. What is this covenant? This is uh, from Jeremiah 31, 33 to 34. But what is this covenant that the book of Jeremiah is predicting would come to pass? The covenant is the blood of Christ and gospel. Yeah, the new covenant, the blood of Christ, which ratifies the covenant. The gospel proclaims the covenant. And so the, the new covenant is the one that we have in Christ. What was the Old Covenant? Well, the Ten Commandments would be the, yeah, the Mosaic Covenant is the Old Covenant. The Ten Commandments would be sort of a summary of the laws of the Old Testament, although it's just a brief statement of the many laws. There's over 600 of them. Jeremiah 31, 33-34 is the prophecy here. Notice it says here, I will put their, my laws on their heart, and upon their mind I will write them. Yes, let me show you why I believe that the Old Covenant is the Mosaic, even though there are certainly other covenants. There, you're right, uh, Tim, there's the Mosaic, I mean the Abrahamic Covenant, the Noadic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant. But this isn't particularly referring to the Mosaic one, and there's a reason why we know that... <laughs> Let me find this here. It's in the book of Hebrews, I think. Yeah, that's earlier. It talks about the Mosaic house, but it says here, not like the covenant I made with them. Yeah, which they broke. Now, that's in Hebrews. Now, we've been, I should be able to see that right off the bat here. Yes. 
<laughs> I think you're right. The only one they could have broken. Yeah. Otherwise, because if you think about it, the covenant made with Noah was unilateral. It was God saying he'll never again destroy the earth with a flood. So, there isn't anything you can do to break that. The covenant with Abraham was unilateral. Right? The covenant with David was unilateral because it says, if you can break my covenant with the day or with the night uh, so that the sun and the moon won't shine, then you can break my covenant with my servant David. The implication is you can't do it. Yes? I think part of it should be looked in Hebrews 4. It says the, there's a Sabbath rest to enter into, and there was a Sabbath rest that Moses, the Mosaic covenant promised, that uh, they didn't enter into because of disobedience, and the New Covenant is also promising an eternal type of Sabbath rest. So the Davidic covenant wasn't a Sabbath rest covenant so much as another. As a king, you have the other covenants were promising Sabbath rest, and the Sabbath rest that was offered was to be Moses. Uh, amen. This happened. Uh, I'm going to find this here now because it's bugging me. Here it is in Hebrews 8, uh, starting with verse 6. Now he's obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is a mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. For as the first had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming. I will make a new covenant. Now this is uh, Jeremiah. But look at verse 9. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Now that's specifically which covenant that he made on the day he took them out of Egypt. The Mosaic Covenant. So specifically, the covenant that's been done away with is the Mosaic Covenant. And the one that replaces it is the New Covenant in Christ. That doesn't do away with the covenant with Abraham. Now, the covenant with David is fulfilled in Christ as well, though it has some yet future aspect, because there's a man to sit on the throne, and the Bible claims that Jesus is enthroned in heaven at the right hand of the Father, but he's coming again to literally take the throne of David. Okay, well, let's discuss that. I'll say it again so it comes out on somebody's list on tape. The question was, if the old Mosaic Covenant was done away with, does that mean the Ten Commandments are done away with? Uh, Inasmuch as there are specific stipulations of that covenant, we could say so, but not in, in the in the abiding moral law of God. And most people believe that the moral law of God is uh, perpetual. I think the interesting thing about the Ten Commandments is that every one of them is reiterated in the New Covenant except the Sabbath. Well, we know from Hebrews that the Sabbath was fulfilled in Christ so that he, you know, that we enter into Sabbath rest in Christ. But the specific details about how you keep Sabbath would be part of the Old Covenant. Yes, Mike. Okay, the, the, it was about, he was asking about the law being fulfilled in Christ, and definitely he, the law is fulfilled in Christ as far as imputed righteousness and our right standing before God, and also ultimately our sanctification is by faith as well. The question, though, is the New Testament gives, still gives us moral guidance so that we know what that looks like. 
For example, it says in the Ten Commandments to not covet. The New Testament says to not covet. So the moral guidance would still be accurate, even though it's only in Christ that we could ever be pleasing to God. But being in Christ, we need to know, is it okay to covet or not? Or is it okay to have idols? Or should we honor father and mother? Or should we commit adultery? Or should we steal? Right, the inner law that's written on our hearts, I think, has a, a power to help us obey and a motivation to obey. But what we obey is still objectively the same as far as the guidance goes. Yes? I think that Paul says the law is still valid for law breakers. If we are in Christ and believing in the gospel and that belief is being expressed in our lives, he won't be breaking those ten commandments because he's saying Because of the believing of the Holy Spirit and let us break the ten commandments because that's not to be done. You sing that song about the fruit of the Spirit is against such original law. However, it is not to be said. Right. So nobody. So the Bible's guarding against this libertine or antinomian doctrine that says you can do anything you want as long as you're a Christian. Yeah, it doesn't mean you can do anything you want. Exactly. There's a real neat uh, little slice uh, of discussion of this in Acts. The council in Jerusalem when they said, well, what should we tell these Gentiles and Christians to do? And they, they got together and they just said, well, it's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles to return to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from polluted, uh, foods polluted by idols. That would be kind of relative to idol worship. Yeah. Which, even though they wouldn't be worshiping idols, it would uh, maybe be offensive to some others around them. Um, from sexual immorality, and you got uh, at least one of the Ten Commandments there. Uh, from meat strangled them. Meat of strangled animals and from blood. I don't know why they threw that in. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Yeah. God is able to tell these people what to do. And I think that's basic. Yeah, they weren't under the ceremonial law, but they weren't to be offensive to their neighbors and they were to follow the basic moral law of God. Keith has mentioned this passage as 1 Timothy 1, 8. But we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Realizing, in fact, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, immoral men, homosexuals, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. So here we have the law and the gospel. So the law needs to be preached so that people that are in this condition realize they need the gospel. That's what I believe. I think if you have Christians, especially, uh, where that's applicable, that are breaking the law, 
that you bring the force of love. So God said this is unacceptable, and you call yourself Christian, claiming that you have the internal law inside of you, and yet you live externally in a way that's not consistent with what God's laws are. Therefore, there's something wrong in you. Repent. Okay. Yeah, the law gives moral guidance to... Uh, <laughs> all right. God's authority is what we believe. All right. Okay, so we're looking at this. He, what does it mean, I will put my laws on their heart? Now, uh, Mike was alluding to that. Does anybody else want to comment? Uh, what does it mean that God puts his laws on our heart? Denise. That's a good point. The circumcised heart, which is something Moses said that was necessary back in Deuteronomy. It was something that was promised in Ezekiel 36. And it's something the New Testament says that God's done in Christ. So there's an inner work of grace that actually makes people desirous to do what's pleasing to God. Exactly. The difference is... Um, have you ever been on a college campus where they got a lot of freshmen? And you get, you get this, uh, you get this lawless culture that people revel in. At least I noticed that, uh, when I was a freshman at Iowa State, that the, that the kids coming off the, out of their homes and wherever are going off to college and they've all their lives up for 18 years, somebody's been telling them, you can't do this, you can't do that, and you've got to behave yourself. And They get off to college, and the, and the basic culture is, I'm going to do anything I want to do, and if somebody thinks that it's wrong, then there's something seriously wrong with that person. Okay, And if you become a Christian in that culture, you literally suffer persecution. Because they're saying, I can do anything I want, and anybody who thinks otherwise is crazy. Now, in some ways, the whole world thinks that way. It's just a little more muted than it is on the college campus. Same way in the Navy. Yeah, same way in the Navy, he says, all right. <laughs> now, what the Holy Spirit does when somebody's converted is that now there's an internal agreement with the law of God. You may not immediately be able to go out and just in every possible way be this wonderful, perfect Christian however badly you want to, but there's always an internal agreement that God works graciously with the circumcised heart that would say, I, I agree with the law of God that is holy, and I hope I, that something will change in me. Does that make sense? I believe that is what it means when God writes His law in your heart. Not only that you comprehend what His law is, but you have a, a desire to be different that would not happen by any ordinary means. And the law itself is incapable of creating that desire. Paul talks about that in Romans 7. Remember when he says that the law stirred up sinful lust in him? When the law said, Thou shalt not covet, that it killed him. Right. So, the law can... How, how does that work? Well, it's like telling a rebellious teenager that there's something he can't do. That becomes the one goal of his life, whatever it was. Yeah. Okay. 
even if it was something he hadn't thought about before. <laughs> yes, Keith. You know, you're writing that article on the emerging church and the mystical side of things. And when it says, I've seen this kind of passage saying that this is the Christian enlightenment, that we're, we're just having our own little uh, mystical experience like the Buddhists or the other people that this is what it's talking about. And there's a difference here when God's writing our law and our hearts of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit, if you look at Luther again, comes through the Word. So we have a propositional, objective truth that the Holy Spirit writes in our heart, and our lives are consistent with what's written down in the book, that you can tell it that this person has God's law in his heart because he's living according to God's, he's not breaking these other laws externally because it's being motivated from the inside. I think that big difference that we have over the mystics is that there is a propositional law that we can look at mm-hmm. and the Ten Commandments, the laws of God, and say that a person that has the laws written on his heart is consistent. Right. There's no disjuncture uh, or uh, disconnect between the internal law and the objective law. Exactly. Whereas if someone might be a mystic and they'd say, well, the this inner guidance is always leading me in the right way. That's that that ability is broken. We're not capable of based on inner guidance going the right way because we're easily deceived. So the inner and the outer are in agreement, and that's why the New Testament provides almost every one of the epistles starts out with doctrine and ends up with practical exhortation. Objective guidance about what now if you're going to apply this doctrine, here's what you do so that you can objectively have criteria to see whether you're doing it or not. Like in Ephesians, it says, let him who steals, steal no more, but rather let him work that he might have that to give to him that has need. So it's very practical. What's God's antidote to being a thief? Get a job and then help take some of your money and give it away. It's the total opposite of stealing. It is breaking that spirit of covetousness by being willing to be a giver. Okay, so notice here, I will put my laws on their hearts and upon their minds. This is a Hebraic expression which is a synonymous parallelism. And I've talked about this before. One of the ways that the Jews wrote was using parallelism. And when I studied the Old Testament with this one teacher I had at seminary, we had to learn seven different types of parallelisms that they used. And uh, I can only remember two. No, three. So there you go. All that tuition. <laughs> I know. I remember. I, re- I remember uh, synonymous parallelism. Uh, antithetical parallelism and a synthetic parallelism, and I'm not sure what the other five were or four were. But nevertheless, uh, the, the most common would be the synonymous and the antithetical, and you can see that in the Proverbs. The righteous man is generous. The righteous man gives to the poor. That's a synonymous parallelism. Being generous and giving to the poor would be saying the same things in two different ways. Antithetical would be, the righteous man is generous. The wicked man is stingy. They're opposites. 
So the couplet would be saying the same thing or saying the opposite. The Proverbs is all laid out that way. The Psalms usually are too. Now, why is it important to know this? Because sometimes we get confused when we try to make distinctions when there are none. So when you see a synonymous parallelism, that's how you can tell what words mean. So what we find here is the term heart and mind are used synonymously. It's not some anatomical difference that we need to figure out. If you remember Washman, he had this stuff that broke man down in all these component parts, and this part does this, and this part does that. That's very non-Jewish thinking, okay? The, the Hebrew idea was the holistic. You have a whole person. The whole person goes to God. The whole person is converted. The whole person listens to God. It's not like my spirit's going over here, my soul's going over there. Uh, that's just not the way it works. Since you mentioned parallelism and the three that you remember, can I mention a verse that I think would clear up something? Uh, John 6.37 says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Right. I've been told in the past that one verse written by one author in that particular book gave the Calvin and the Arminian point of view all in one verse. But would you say it's a parallelism, the same thing said a different way? Well, it says, All that the Father gives me shall come, and the one who comes... I will not cast out. So those who come are the same group of people. All right. The one verse is telling why they come because the Father gave them to the Son. The second verse tells what happened when they come. They will not be cast out. In other words, the Lord would keep them. So yeah, it's it's synonymous group with a progression of thought. There's a why and then a what. But it's the same group. I think that the confusion would be if you took the second couplet and tried to make it also a cause, yeah, which is not the same. The second couplet is dependent on the first. Yeah, the second, the second is dependent on the first. The first says why they come. The second doesn't talk about why they come. That's already settled. The second tells what happens when they come. They come because the Father gave them. When they come, He won't cast them out. So you have there the doctrine of election and the doctrine of perseverance in two verses. And it goes on in verse 39 and says that all that the Father gives will be raised up right in the last day. So there you have perseverance as well. Yeah, uh, very very good. Okay. Um, I had something here. Well, I have a bunch of stuff here from William Lane. Let me quote a couple of things. Um, the Spirit brings the detail of the text from the past into the present and makes it contemporary with the experience of the readers. In other words, this is why there's a citation of Scripture here. And then he goes on and says this, The fact that the old sacrifices had been superseded by the unique offering of Christ implied that the old covenant is indeed obsolete. 8.13, we read that. and has been replaced by a promised new covenantal arrangement. The writer selected for quotation only salient features of Jeremiah 31, 33 to 34. In his free repetition of the oracle, two blessings of the new covenant are underscored. God will inscribe his law on their hearts and minds of his people, and he will no longer remember their sins and their misdeeds. So he goes on, the alternation of mind and heart um, 
shows that both words are synonymous terms related to the center of the individual's interior life. That's what I just said. It's a synonymous, they're synonymous terms. Um, we sometimes use it differently. Have you heard people say, well, people have head knowledge but not heart knowledge? What, what do they mean when they say that? Usually they mean that they've maybe been to... I was just listening to an old blues song. This is the... No, no yeah, but the blues song had it in there. The, the, I, I heard what the preacher said, but the words they heard did him no good because I went on... What, what's that song, Pete? Is it shaky ground? Yeah, standing on shaky ground. And it talked about this guy who grew up at church when he was still living for the devil. And so that would be a valid category that it's possible to have your head full of Christian stuff and not be converted. And so people mean that as a valid distinction. But I remember I was <coughs> this guy that was always kind of a troubled soul and kept falling back into sin. I, I went fishing with him up north and we were driving back and he says, well, I got all kinds of head knowledge, but I don't have heart knowledge. And I said to him, so what you're telling me is you're not obeying what Christ told you to do? And he goes, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> he didn't like the way I, re- I interpreted what he said. To him. He didn't like hearing it that way. So in other words, you're not doing what, what you know God told you to do. Yeah. Yeah, now there, yeah, there is a false distinction being made. All right, there are those people who would say the Bible is your head knowledge, and some new revelation of the Holy Spirit that you gain through some secret process is the heart knowledge, and they make a conceptual difference or a content difference, as if once you got the heart knowledge, you have some other thing than what the Bible says, and that's not true. If you have the Bible head knowledge, when it begins heart knowledge, what that means is you believe what the Bible says and you're willing to obey what the Bible says, but it doesn't change the content. Yes. A lot of the whole concept is that head knowledge but not heart knowledge is that I may be intelligent, but my heart is stupid, so it's not my fault. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I got a smart brain, a dumb heart. Well, what we're learning from Hebrews is if God writes his laws on your heart and mind, then you have a holistic knowledge of God. You have a conceptual knowledge because these are objective laws. And you have a relational knowledge because you know God. And these are integrated. They're not, there's not some disjunct between the two. And this is what a changed life looks like. Yes. We had a Bible study one time where I had some Pentecostals that were attending the study. And the head knowledge, heart knowledge thing at the Bible study was, well, yeah, we know what the Word of God says, but I had an experience. So now I know, based on my experience, that this is what it means. And it was kind of a one-upsmanship. So whoever had the best experience. There's a deep stream of this experiential-oriented Christianity in Protestantism, as well as Roman Catholicism. But in Protestantism, it's called pietism. All right, And it goes all the way back to the time of Luther. And Luther called these people the enthusiasts. And he had nothing good to say about them. (laughs) Luther hated the enthusiasts. They were, they were wicked rebels, the heavenly prophets, and 
he, he had nothing good to say about the enthusiasts. But, it went, but the stream worked its way through Protestant Christianity with his Bome. And then there was a version of it in England. It came over to America. The Quakers would fall into the stream, the inner light movement. Where you were looking for some, waiting for an experience of inner light. Yeah, yeah, when they had the experience, and it is still very much alive in contemporary Christianity. This inner light, secret revelation. Yeah, you, you gain this experience that would supersede uh, the objective revelation of the Word of God, and the issue isn't whether somebody has a spiritual experience or what other kind of experience they may have, it's whether they truly believe the Word in faith and by grace God's working in your life. And when I talk about means of grace, I believe they're objective and not subjective. Okay, so let's continue on here. We might get through more than one verse. Can you imagine? Hebrews 10, 17, In their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. What's the significance of God not remembering them? Yeah, basically it's the idea of forgiveness or acquittal. Isn't there a passage about God putting them in the deepest sea? The sea of forgetfulness? So if God doesn't remember, that means He won't be bringing them up later. Right? Now, that doesn't mean literally God has the inability to know what we used to do. We can remember what we used to do. I suppose God can too. <laughs> won't hold it into account is what it means. Yes, uh, Kathy. This whole thing down in Florida about the scale being... Uh, um, Terry Shabbat? Yeah, that whole thing. How does that apply to this? Well, how it applies whether we believe that God's Word gives us moral guidance about such things and therefore make a decision about what's right and wrong. So, well, the the moral debate in America has to do with two whole different views of God and man and good and evil. And one view believes that goodness is the happiness of man, however that may be. Um, so, generally, that's the... What's the humanistic... If you debate secular humanism, and you ask them where do they get moral guidance, because they have moral ideas, and they'll go and preach morals, good and evil, where does it come from? Generally, the answer is we believe that the, the we believe in the maximum amount of happiness for the maximum amount of people, okay, or the maximum good for the maximum people in terms of happiness. Now, when you debate that, um, there's some things you can say about that. My uh, one of my professors, Dr. Clark, gave an illustration about what's wrong with that. He says, okay, so we believe in the maximum pleasure or uh, happiness for the maximum amount of people. He says, so let's say you're in Rome and you have this Colosseum and you've got 80,000 happy people and one unhappy Christian getting chewed up by a lion. 
So you just maximize the amount of happiness for the most people. The one, you know, getting chewed up by the lion maybe is not so happy, but, you know, you got to go with the majority on this. And so you can point out things that would be obvious flaws, at least to us, but that generally that's the, the view. And if you want to see all the debates going on, whether it's abortion, homosexuality, the contentious debates that are raging in our society, the fallout along these ideas about what is good. Everybody would think that there are certain things that are good. On what basis? If it comes down to the happiness of man, as we consider in this life only, then you come out and say, well, this makes more people happy. If you believe there's a moral law of God and that ultimately the, glo- the point of, of life is not the happiness of man, but the glory of God, and by faith believing that what God tells us ultimately is for our good, even if it's just our eternal good, then you come up with a different way of deciding on moral issues. And that's where, really where the debate rages. So you have to... But even at that, you come... You, there, are, there are difficulties even... Given that, even our basis, we still have things that we don't know that was, that are very because of technology. Now the feeding tube isn't—I don't know if it's so heroic—but what about some of these cases where someone's in their late 80s and they have the ability to t- to hook up every kind of a device known to man to keep somebody who's dying alive anyhow? Are we morally obligated to do that? Entire resources of all of America went to keep one person alive. Is that, is that a moral responsibility that we have to do? Right. right. So technology creates some problems even for our worldview as far as making these decisions. And I don't think it's always so cut and dried uh, when it comes to how heroic of measures is necessary to be moral. And if, if a Christian has one of these do not resuscitate things, when when is that wrong? I don't think it's necessarily wrong. Is there a law of God that says you have to be hooked up to a machine? And a, and a, a lawgiver. Where there's an authoritative lawgiver that we have to submit to is, is disputed. And we'd say that God is the authoritative lawgiver. Yeah, but in, in this particular case that, that she's talking about, you're talking about starving a person to death. I mean, this is, you know... I've read the articles on people who, prisoners of war who have been starved near the point of death. That's one of the most horrific ways to die right. because of what it does to your body mentally and physically. I mean, you might as well take uh, Terry and hook her up to an electric chair and uh, pull yeah. the switch well, and pull it in her head. I think almost yeah. all Christians are, are, are on the side of what you're talking about here. Yeah. I, I think some of these arguments this way. In terms of the civil, what's civilly right and what's civilly wrong, I think, especially with technology, that we have the ability to spend a vast amount of money to influence things. It's a weird argument to be as a Christian. I don't think it's, a lot of it's just not not helpful. I can say I have an opinion here, or I have an opinion there, but when I say this is the moral thing, and you're being morally evil to take the other side, on a lot of the complex issues, it's just fairly narrow. I think there are arguments that people could make a biblical case that we're not obligated to spend the entire resources of society for a single person. I just don't, I don't see a lot of those things. Well, right, technology has muddied the waters. These are questions that 200 years ago nobody would even have to worry about. 
Okay. No, that's true. Well, let's look at verse 18. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there's no longer any offering for sin. This is a repetition in Hebrews. It's been maybe ten times now. We've got the same message. So, if something's repeated often in the Bible, what do we learn? It's important. Good answer. So, what's important? What's important is that the offering that Christ made is once for all, and it settles it, and you don't have to create future offerings. There's no other offering for sin than the one that's already been made. Now, why is it? Im- yes. Right. What's under what's under uh, consideration here is the eternal consequences. Right. That that God has once for all forgiven. We may still be living with various consequences of whatever it was that we shouldn't have been doing. And, we, and actually, the whole human race, redeemed or not, is living with consequences. Right? We live in a fallen world. So the consequences are with us until the new heavens and the new earth. True. All right. Uh, That's true. It says here, uh, Lane says, The people of the new covenant enjoy unhindered access to God in worship. The only sacrifice required of them is a sacrifice of praise. Hebrews thirteen fifteen. So, we can thank God that we have unhindered access to God in worship. I think another consequence of this, and it's one that's certainly uh, part of the discussion in the book of Hebrews, is it takes away the power of religious authorities over worshipers. If God paid the penalty once for all and has given all people of faith unhindered access to the throne of grace and the forgiveness of sins, therefore, the religious authorities don't have the power to sell it or to meet it out at their discretion or to make people jump through hoops to get it. And it takes away this power that religious authorities want. And they try to get them back. Yes. I'll take the same thing as Terry Scheibel because I think that's interesting here. On the religious authority issue, if I as a religious authority, uh, Keith Pope, say that I interpret the scriptures that Terry Scheibel, if you touch Terry Scheibel, you're going to hell because you're sitting before God. Because Keith Pope said that. Without giving the explanation from God's authority to the scriptures themselves, because I am Keith Pope, that's a dominating you in abuse because you know if you're going to believe what I say, you have to keep very tight on that. And then we can have a Bob book that says, no, uh, God's telling you you have to keep her alive. And you end up with a religious battle with religious authorities trying to separate you from God unless you obey them. And that's that's what I have a hard time with. with the, the, when, when you bring the scriptures, here's the scriptural argument that I say is looking at this, and the other has, side has scriptural arguments. At least you have an authority that's God himself speaking somehow. Maybe it's a different kind of a battle. Um, you know, the, to muddy the waters, I, you know they had, the, they had this thing in education to confuse children about ethics where they'd have these test cases 
where you'd say, okay, you've got three people in a lifeboat and only enough food for two. Now you have to decide who to throw overboard. Uh, and, and the world relishes these muddy water type things because it, makes, it gives the impression that there are no absolutes. They try to find an ethical question that we can't answer because it's, it's one of these really, really tough eth- ethical dilemmas where it's hard to decide. And then they like to imply that they're all that way. So being how everything is that way, everything is a tough ethical dilemma. Why try to decide any? Let everybody do what's right in their own eyes. Well, we would say is no, we have right and we have wrong and we have absolutes. Does that mean there are no ethical conflicts? No, it doesn't. There are ethical conflicts. There are real ethical conflicts where whatever we do is going to be wrong. Okay. Yeah, I studied that. I had a studied actually under Dr. Rakestraw, who's often interviewed on channel, on one of the news channels when there's an ethical dilemma, because he's an evangelical who's emphasized ethics. And I studied. I don't agree with his his version of it, which is an interesting one. He's sort of a perfectionist. He says there are no ethical dilemmas, uh, and I don't agree with him. But um, it's an interesting study. And ultimately, you have to decide that if you have an ethical dilemma, for example, the, the woman who hid the Hebrew slaves, one would say that you have an ethical dilemma. Now, do you allow the God's chosen people to be defeated by the wicked enemies, or do you lie? And then lying would be a sin, and turning the Hebrews over to their enemies would be a sin. And so, what did she decide to do? To lie. But yet the Bible said by faith, she hid them. And so one version of ethics would be the greater good. That If you choose the greater good, the less evil is the Lutheran version. Uh, and the, and uh, Norm Geisler says the greater good, yes. Yeah, I, that's, I understand that. But it, I don't know that that means there are no ethical dilemmas. For example... Um, uh, if uh, we're told to obey civil authorities. But on the other hand, if the civil authority tells us not to preach the gospel, then we have to decide whether to obey God or man. No, it's an ethics in... Right, that's what we would say. Right. Yeah, so the, that, see, that's the kind of thing you talk about in ethics. So the Peter said we ought to obey God rather than man. But in some ways, he's disregarding what Peter said in 1 Peter and what Paul said in Romans 13 to obey civil authorities. So if you want to read it, I have an essay on this written by Norm Geisler that's excellent. And he says as long as he calls it a greater, graded absolutism, graded absolutism. Okay, now here's how, how he does that. As long as we're talking ethics, let me... Do you mind? No. All right. Graded absolutism says that the Bible itself tells you what's the greater good. Okay? And, then if the, and so like in this one, if the Bible says that it's more a greater good to preach the gospel than to obey civil authorities, then we know 
that absolutely the answer is to preach the gospel, to obey God rather than man. Now, why do we know that? Because we see it in the Bible from the example of Peter and from the relative uh, value. Now, not that all of the commands aren't important. Jesus talked about this. He said, uh, you, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, because you tithe mill, uh, mint, cumin, and dill, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice, and, and, and so on. So there's a, there's a degree. So we know that it's a good thing for them to obey the law of Moses in their tithing, but it's more important to show justice. So you have graded absolutism says everything, the commands of God are absolute, but within the commands are the uh, clues to what's more or less important. And if you have a seeming conflict, you choose the more important one. Now, I have a fantastic essay on that, that if you really, really want to learn ethics, I'm willing to copy it. It's in, it's in one of my books, uh, but it's by Norm Geisler. Yes. That's when I believe that there is an absolute uh, importance that God puts on, on, on relative issues. There's, God looks at issues in different importance, different levels of importance. Right. But then I'm faced because I'm in real life and I'm making real choices to make decisions between these things that are relative. And I'm flawed and fallible and sometimes just stupid. So I'm trying to make a, a decision based on something that's objective in the scriptures, and it's not always obvious. Well, I know it. it's not always obvious. For example, if you ever raise a rebellious teenager, um, one of the things that rebellious teenagers do is, is is tempt you like we tempt God. When, in other words, remember, jump off the tim- pin- pinnacle of the temple, and the angels will catch you. And, the, and Jesus said, "Don't tempt the Lord your God." Well, because, why? Well, because then God either has to send the angels to catch the jumper, which reinforces the idea that it's okay to do this, or let the jumper splat on the ground, which is not a very favorable option either. So, if you have a rebellious teenager, what they do is that. They force you as a father into the situation of always having to choose one of two evil options. Either you let me stay out all night or I'm going to run away from home. I'm just giving an example. Right? Uh, <laughs> not that I ever ran into this. And, and, so, and, and so, as a father, you're, you're, you're torn because you think, well, if my child runs away from home, the wickedness that might happen would be far greater but on the other hand, if I tolerate my child staying out all night, I'm compromising what I believe is right as a father and my authority as a father to protect and to take care of my child. And you're forced to continually make... It's like you have a decision all the time. Do you want to be shot or hung? <laughs> and <laughs> That's what, yeah, with the Old Testament, you just get rid of the problem. You take them out to the, you take them out to the gate of the city and they stone them and you don't have any more problems. But, uh, <laughs> if we had, I, I, let me tell you a little story about that as long as we're on a discursus here. I was in that same teacher, Dr. Rakestraw, we were talking about 
Christian Reconstructionism, and they wanted to reinstitute the Old Testament law through civil law, including reinstituting slavery. And so he was saying, yeah, they want what they want to do, and he was telling all this, these laws that they wanted to institute based on the Old Testament civil law. And he says, and I was agreeing with Rakesraw because I knew about Reconstruction, and I actually ended up writing a paper about it. And, and so we were talking in class, and the rest of the students were listening. He says, yeah, and they even want to stone, or they want to execute rebellious teenagers. And I went, well, you know, I think that's one idea that they got going for them that maybe we should really consider. And everybody laughed about that. So maybe maybe they got a point there that uh, on that one. But nevertheless, you get the point that you run into decisions where both of them are very distasteful. And what we have to do is choose the one that we think, as far as the values God has revealed in the Bible, we're choosing the more important one. Dick. Okay. Okay. And we're really talking about two things. One is there is forgiveness and no longer any offering. In the Jewish world, it said put your own sacrifices. In the Catholic right. world, it says your mass doesn't work. Right. What does it mean in the process? Is there anything? Well, I think that it means that we totally have to understand justification by faith and keep going back to the, the, the once for all shed blood of Jesus that washes away sins. And I think it takes away this power of the, the Benny Hins of the world. They're telling you, you know, you got to give your money to the evangelists or you got to do this or that. I mean, we, it takes away the power of Protestant religion and authority to make people jump through hoops in order to make them feel like they can be right with God. Scott. Yeah, I heard that. Yep. Yeah, they're 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 at work on that one. Uh, well, thank you for the discussion. I, bottom line is, as you point out, Dick, is that it, this is once for all, and we need to be reminded of that. And part of the reason for communion for Christians is to remind us that this is once for all, that the blood of Jesus was shed for sins once for all, in order to bring that we might come to God. So. This is uh, Palm Sunday, as it's called, and I'll be preaching from John chapter 12. And we will have a time of worship at 1030. In the meantime, there's uh, donuts and coffee. So, God bless you.